This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. There's a shortage of doctors and nurses who care for patients who are chronically sick or nearing death. These providers specialize in what's called palliative care. And in the coming decade, experts say the shortage is going to get worse. The hope is to relieve the pain with a first-in-the-nation master's degree at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Amos Bailey specializes in palliative care at CU. He told Nathan Heffel there's friction between physicians who focus mainly on fixing a health problem and palliative care doctors who emphasize comfort. If you think about it historically, in 1955, the nascent ICU was formed in the United States. And it basically was during the polio epidemic and the iron lungs. And we went from a place where people, you know, when people died, we didn't have resuscitation to a place where if you died, unless you opted out of resuscitation, you got resuscitated. So people like um, Kubler-Ross in 1968 writes her book uh, On Death and Dying, and you have people um, like Dame Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern hospice movement in England, starts St. Christopher's Hospice in 1967. And what you saw was almost this idea of we're rescuing people from this increasingly technological, not comforting medical system and bringing them, you know, to their home and have the comfort of not being, you know, in a hospital setting. So there seems there was historically some conflict there. There's this tension between the medical sciences wanting to basically fix everything and the, a group of people who are saying, you know, death in, is part of the natural course of life and, you know, these machines are helpful in some situations, but in other situations, they may be causing unnecessary suffering. And so there was this kind of dichotomy about this. So explain for our listeners what palliative care is and why it's important. So palliative care is a group of providers, usually nurses, physicians, uh, social work, uh, pastoral care, other people who are uh, working with patients and family, dealing with very difficult illnesses, and we concentrate on things like pain and symptom management, but we also know that suffering and distress are made worse by psychological, spiritual, social uh, problems that come with chronic illness, and you need to be addressing all of these at the same time. Are there any national standards right now for palliative care providers? Nurses have taken the lead in palliative care going way back to the 1970s. For physicians, it's only been recently that there's been a recognized specialty in palliative medicine. And there's uh, about 300 to 350 people nationally training each year as physicians in palliative medicine. It doesn't seem like a lot being trained every year. No, it's actually a relatively small number. And, and the number of nurses in specialty training is also relatively small. I would estimate probably less than 500. 
although there are a lot of nurses and physicians who are working at least part of their practice in palliative care. But a lot of us, like myself, were self-trained. And that's very different from, let's say, a pediatrician who has very specialized training. Right. So it is very, it is very different. In the last 10, 15 years, there's been an effort to improve the, and integrate palliative care into the training of physicians and nurses and all kinds of healthcare workers so that people have basic knowledge. However, specialty care for more complex problems is really limited. Well, shouldn't a primary care provider or, or, a, or a specialist already be managing a, a patient's overall pain? Well, in many times they do, but sometimes we think, well, you know, if we treat the disease, if we treat the heart failure, then the symptoms go away. And they may go away for a while, but as the heart failure gets worse, the symptoms recur. And so if you're just concentrated on disease, then you're still going to have untreated symptoms. So the ideal is to treat symptoms and to use the best of modern medicine to control, you know, illness. And you'll get the best outcome when you do these two things. Dr. Bailey, is the role of palliative care doctors then to provide balance in a patient's overall care? I mean, if you're so short of breath when your mental health provider comes to see you, you can't talk to him or her, you're not going to get much out of it. If you're in so much pain when your social worker comes to see you that you're distracted, you're not really going to benefit from that. And for different people, it may be, you know, I have great social support. You know, I have lots of um, brothers and sisters and friends and family, and everyone is rallying around, and, you know, my insurance is covering things, and, you know, I'm really got it down pretty pat here. But I really am struggling with why is this happening to me. I'm really depressed and sad. So you can see that for any one person, it will be very different. Your field then would focus on these areas and letting the specialists focus on fixing the lung or fixing the heart or or curing the cancer. And actually, uh, there's some evidence that that's actually what patients want, that sometimes patients and family are reluctant to talk about these kinds of things with, you know, their oncologist or their, you know, pulmonologist or their liver specialist because they're like, we want that person to focus on fixing our cancer, on, you know, getting us to a liver transplant. And if I distract them by um, talking about these other problems that I'm having, you know, they're distracted from this really important task. Dr. Bailey, are other schools looking at creating a master's program similar to yours in, in palliative care? There are some um, places around the country, including here at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, where the College of Nursing has had a certificate program in palliative care. It's been, you know, for nurses, but we do know that there are a couple of other of these nurse certificate programs who in the last year or so have moved to become interprofessional, meaning allowing other kinds of professionals to enroll, like 
physicians and PAs. It's too early to say how well that's working out. We don't know of any group that's trying to uh, start a degree, but we want to take people to a level where they can be not only an excellent provider, but a leader for palliative care in their community. Thank you very much for taking time to speak with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nathan. Dr. Amos Bailey is an oncologist and palliative care provider at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. The first students arrive for the master's program at the end of the summer. Bailey spoke with Nathan Heffel. Up next, film star Bill Pullman tries his hand at writing for stage in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. You might recognize actor Bill Pullman for his role as President Thomas J. Whitmore in the movie Independence Day. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Pullman's other films include Sleepless in Seattle and A League of Their Own. But this week, he's in Denver to preview a new project he wrote for the stage. It's called The Wild Hunt, and the Hollywood and Broadway actor says it's a return to his roots. You know, in downtime and other times, I get to take out The Wild Hunt and get a chance to kind of reconnect with theater in a way that is more of a laboratory. Pullman hosts a preview Sunday. He chose Denver's Vision Box Studio to help him develop the project. Co-director Jennifer McCray-Rincon joins us. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. It seems appropriate to be talking about this play now because it's wintertime, the nights are long. This project explores Nordic and Yuletime pagan beliefs, and the story centers on a character named Lucy who's in a mental health facility in New England. She has premonitions of an apocalypse, and Pullman says he wanted to capture the darkness of the winter solstice. The seam between the living and the dead is most permeable at that time. There's a sense that humankind could be resilient and adapt to all the problems that are ahead, but also her understanding that perhaps the human race may be more bent towards self-destruction. What struck you about this theme? I guess... There seems to be a time in history when we've advanced so much technologically, but spiritually and humanly, there's a disconnect going on in our lives where, you know, as all technologies have developed, and in particular, my mind goes to my cell phone, that we're we're all connected, but through some kind of very isolating and artificial source of information and that we're losing something in ourselves and in our way of life that I think we're seeing everywhere. So this story, you know, that it centers on a young woman who something has happened to her and um, that she may be a messenger. There's a, a Tennessee Williams thing about many times human beings who have mental illness or are outside of society in some way, a fugitive kind of person may have connections to something deeper and ancient that that can be healing and redemptive in some way. What you're working on is such a dark theme, and I wonder if it sort of permeates your life while you're working on a performance like this. Absolutely. I think one of the reasons I got into the theater in the first place was that I liked to study everything. I was interested in everything, biology, sociology, art, everything. And something, the theater 
to me, you know, brings together every aspect of the human condition and the study of it and the articulation of it. And so it's intellectually really exciting and challenging, but it's a deeply emotional art form and it can't help but affect who you are in the moment of it. This is very much a work in progress. Um, What will the audience see on Sunday? There will be probably a first act of what will become a full-length piece. And there will be live music. There will be puppets. There will be some lighting and projection work. There will be nine ensemble actors. There may be sections there where they're reading from a script. But a lot of it will be the sense of the prototype of what is to come. The people will come see what is called a work-in-progress showing. This is not a production. They'll feel like they're sort of part of the practice and learning to make this. Yeah, and it'll feel like being at a rehearsal in some ways where they get to see what we do. But it will definitely be watching a piece being created. As someone who's directing this, is that a scary prospect? It's really scary. It's more scary for Bill, and um, we're very good collaborators, but, you know, he is the writer and the director, so I think he's got a huge responsibility, and there's, you know, a, a risk factor in letting people in. And you've worked with Bill Pullman before. How did you connect with him? In 1983, I had a grant uh, as a young director in New York, and I directed a new play. I had met a writer named Richard Greenberg, who's now an amazing writer. And he had written a play called The Blood Letters, which was about a boy who smelled really bad. And the family had to hire a football player who couldn't smell to be his friend. (laughs) And Bill Pullman auditioned for the show. He was the last guy on the last day. I remember it was raining. He came out of the subway, had a hat on. And he read for the part, and Rich and I looked at each other and said, he's going to be a movie star. Of the football player. Yeah. And he's he, a big guy. He, he's tall, an imposing man. And anyway, we immediately fell in love with his acting, but he was perfect. He did the play, um, became friends the way theater people become friends for life. And um, we reconnected years later when he was in The Goat on Broadway. And I was now the head of acting at the National Theater Conservatory here in Denver. And I said, you've got to come to Denver. You've got to do a show with me. And that started about 12 years ago, a collaboration that hasn't stopped. So Mm -hmm. we did a a play for five years together that we started called Exhibition Six. And then we've been, we talk all the time. I said, you got to come back, got to come back. And so here we are again. The Wild Hunt uses an approach I've never heard before. It's called devised theater. What does that mean? What I understand it to mean is that there is a director, a writer, um, in this case, Bill. He has an idea. He has a treatment. He's beginning to create a script. But that much of the piece is developed in the rehearsal process with all of the collaborators, as opposed to a writer, you know, Edward Albee writes a full-length play, gives it to a director. It goes up in four weeks, five weeks. This is pieces or fragments. There's ideas We cast the show before the script was written um, around the ideas that he already had. And then he begins to write for those people. And then the actors are doing improvisation. There's musicians that are actually writing music as we work. So I think devised can be the process of creating it is with a team of collaborators. So he will write on the people in Mm -hmm. a way. At Vision Box Studios in Denver, you train actors 
What kind of priority does the Wild Hunt give to acting versus other things like set design? Number one, it's very exciting and interesting that Bill is an actor. Um, He was trained as a director in graduate school, and he started his life in the theater as a director, but he has a great empathy and sensitivity to the actor process. The fact that we're a training studio and that our mission is to, you know, elevate this art form and to really support the actor as an artist, because I feel that actors are too often undervalued and um, become kind of puppets for the director vision. And we do a lot of production work that's all about making movies on stage. And so we're really trying to get back to the actor and the text and the imagination. Yeah. Is there something about Denver that makes it a good place to do this kind of work? Oh, I, I totally think that. You know, Bill, when he first came to Denver to work with me, you know, he's got a ranch in Montana and he's from upstate New York. And he talked a lot early on about there being a kind of openness in the West. Um, you know, we may sometimes have a little bit of an inferiority complex uh, uh, about our history and you know, the East Coast is the heart of the American theater, and I'm from New York, but I now say I'm from Denver. I've been here 25 years, and I think there is an openness and an availability for new ideas. There's a lack of judgment that you get in other places, and there's a need, too. You know, we need people here. We need people like Bill Pullman to come and fuse us with ideas and technique and so I would like to see Denver become the London of, you know, America, where we have all of the art forms living and working together. You know, we, we have all the film, mm-hmm. the television, the theater, the fine arts, the music is in one localized place. So artists get to work in different mediums. And I think it creates a different kind of artistry. It creates a much more synchronistic and complex culture that may not have the oldness, but there's a lot of newness out of the oldness that we have here. Jennifer, great to talk to you. Thank you. Jennifer McCray Rincon is co-director of The Wild Hunt, written by actor Bill Pullman. They'll host a preview of the project at Denver's Exto Event Center Sunday. From there, McCray Rincon says they hope to work on the piece in other cities before they bring it back to Denver for a premiere. Coming up next, Elvis Presley's deep ties to Colorado, from police officers to sandwiches. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Walking through a party in the county jail. The prison band was there, they began to wail. The band was jumping and the joint began to swing. You should have heard this knocked out jailbird sing that Elvis Presley would be 81 today, and he developed some close friendships in Denver. He was even made an honorary captain on the city's police force. And former Denver Police Deputy Chief Robert Cantwell has written a book called The Elvis Presley I Knew. In 1970, Elvis was playing a concert at the Denver Coliseum, and Cantwell was assigned to help guard the 10th floor of the Radisson Hotel, where Elvis was staying. Cantwell told Ryan Warner that he was sitting at a desk near the elevator. The elevator opened up, and three people got off of it. And one was dressed like Elvis, and the other two, uh, I think Red West and a guy named Dave Hebler, 
they were with him. These are his bodyguards. And they had all the appropriate ID cards on their around their necks. But the person ended up being Elvis did not have one on him. Sometimes they test your security. And I didn't know if they were doing that at this time or not. But anyway, I asked for his security pass to be on that floor. And they read West and uh, jumped in and said, well, this is Elvis. And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I've never met him before. And there's a bunch of impersonators on the first floor. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Well, Elvis is sort of laughing. And he said, show him my ID. <laughs> so they pulled out the credentials to, you know, to be on the floor, which said Elvis Presley. And so with that said, we let him go on, you know, onto the floor. And that's how I first met him. I love that you were so thorough as a cop that you checked Elvis's ID. And it sounded like he was pretty nice about it, actually. Oh, he was great. I mean, his bodyguards were not very happy or pleased. But how did we know? For sure. Yeah. I'm imagining Elvis at this time in his career, you know, wearing like a white jeweled jumpsuit. Is that what he wore when he wasn't on stage or did he have like street clothes? <laughs> well, I, the only time I've seen him in street clothes, as I would describe street clothes, was when we went and played racquetball and that with him later on. You know, he always had that high collar on, you know, whatever shirt he wore, whether it be white, blue or, you know, whatever. He always had a high, a high collar. Let's get to why Elvis needed protection beyond his own bodyguards, um, why police were on the detail. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, he didn't have a choice uh, for security at the Coliseum. You know, I mean, that's a whole different uh, uh, group of people that require X amount of uh, police officers at the Coliseum for concerts. I see. Then at the hotel, they need security, too. The hotel wanted security because they knew they'd going to get a lot of people trying to get in to see Elvis. And Elvis had received death threats, hadn't he? You know, he he told us that he's always getting death threats. You know, I mean, most entertainers do, you know, and so how serious they, they are, you know, I don't know, nor did he ever say how serious it was, but he always said that's why he carried a gun. <laughs> huh. At this point, he's playing a mixture of his golden hits and cover tunes, from the Beatles to the Righteous Brothers. I want to play something from that era, his 1970 tour, which he ended at the Denver Coliseum. And to put this in context, his big hit in 1969 was still pretty fresh, uh, Suspicious Minds. We can go on You saw Elvis getting ready for the show. Did he have a ritual? Well, when I saw him get ready for the show, he didn't really care to have anybody around him, you know, because he was, he told me he psyched himself up, you know, and you could see it in him. You know, he'd be moving his arms, his legs, and just psyching himself up to uh, go on when they played uh, the entrance song. Yeah. So you eventually did get to go to the Coliseum and see him. Yes. He asked us if we were going to the concert, and I said, no, we're not going to be able to go. We're signed here to keep people off the desk. He said, well, I want you to go. And I said, no. I said, this is our job, and we're going to make sure it's safe for you when you get back. Well, it wasn't 10 minutes later that Jerry Kennedy came over to us and uh, said, well, I guess you're going to the concert. And I said, we are? 
He said, yeah, Elvis wants you to go with him, and we're going to move two other officers up here to the desk. So off we went to the concert with him. Jerry Kennedy, your boss at the Denver Police Department. Eventually, you became friends with Elvis. How did a friendship develop? You know, how you make friends, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, some, there's just an attraction sometimes that brings two people together. And, and Elvis, um, what he saw in me, I'm not sure. Nobody else was ever sure either, <laughs> except we had some general background, uh, family backgrounds that he liked to talk to me about. Hmm. What was that? Well, you know, he came from a very poor family, and uh, his dad was incarcerated like mine was. And they moved a lot, like we did. So, you know, we had a lot of similarities in uh, our backgrounds. That, and he loved his mother. I mean, he really loved his mother. Mm. And so he liked to talk to me about his mother and that. And I like to talk to him about my mother, you know. I guess this friendship you developed leads to photos of Elvis in a police uniform. He was made an honorary captain in Denver. I have to say, it's a little surreal to see Elvis in a Denver police uniform smiling widely. How did those images come about? Well, the next day uh, after the concert, he wasn't in a hurry to leave. And he he told us, hey, call your buddies if they want to come over and get photographs or whatever. Then he had his guns. He wanted to show everybody his guns. And we took him over to uh, meet the chief. And with that, I mean, he... He bought his own uniform. We didn't buy him one. He bought his own. He went down and bought one where we all got our uniforms. When the chief gave him his badge, you know, then he put it on the uniform. You also have a photo of him with a set of his guns. He gave guns his gifts. I want to say that Smithsonian Magazine has a story that Elvis met President Nixon in 1970, and one of Nixon's aides took notes during the meeting and told the magazine that Elvis was concerned about drug culture and asked the president for a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, as it was called then. What do you think was at the heart of his fascination with badges, uniforms, guns? I mean, was he a police officer at heart? (laughs) Yes, he was. He talked to me a lot about that, that he always thought he would become a police officer, but God, these are his words, God blessed him with a voice. Hmm. I said, yeah, I said, I always wanted to be a singer, but I guess I became a police officer. And he says, well, don't give up that day job to be a singer. <laughs> you know, and I said, okay. <laughs> but uh, he did. I mean, in fact, while we were there with him one time in uh, Graceland, he called the sheriff of Shelby County over, who came over with a couple of his deputies playing clothes, and he told them uh, about a, some drug information he had heard in the people that he heard was doing it outside of town. We'll talk a little bit later about drugs, because, of course, there was a lot of speculation around his death that he was on drugs and that that led to his demise. But um, in 1971, a Denver patrolman, this is Officer Merle Nading, was killed by a gunman on Colfax Avenue. And Elvis heard about this killing and, and responded. He did. He even donated the the money so they could finish the gym in his name, which he had started at District 2 gym. And so Elvis donated, I think it was like $5,000. You write that Elvis was more than a superstar to you. He was a true country gentleman. Um, Yes, he was. He cherished those that treated him as a normal person rather than as a meal ticket. Uh, Were you very aware of that? You know, because it's such an unusual thing to become friends with a superstar, 
and want to be clear that you just want to be his friend. You're not interested in money or, you know, fame or something. Yeah, right. Right. None of us were. But he he was uh, definitely a, a country southern gentleman. I mean, off of the stage, he was a different Elvis. You know, he was a superstar on the stage and a super friend off the stage. We didn't treat him like a, a star. You know, we didn't run around, hey, Elvis, what about this? Hey, Elvis, what's it like to be a singer? You know, we didn't do none of that. You know, we just talking like you and I are right now. Bob, there are a few stories of Elvis buying cars for people. Were you ever one of them? <laughs> yes, I was. What did he buy you? It was a 76 Cadillac Seville. Wow. What was your reaction when he did that? Well, my reaction was I didn't want it. What? You know, I I just didn't, a couple of reasons, but one, I... As I say in the book, you know, I what was he going to ask in return? And that was a big concern of mine. And so until we got that straightened out, then I was happy. You're such a straight-laced cop because you're, you're thinking, you know, I don't want this to look like bribery is essentially what you're saying. Well, not about bribery, but I mean more of a, he, he could ask, uh, well, for example, uh, we're going to go skiing or, or on the snowmobiles up here. Would you get a hold of the, the cops up here and and veil and and make sure they don't bother or something like that. But it was clear to you eventually that he did not want anything back, I suppose, and that's when you accepted the car? It was very clear, you know, that uh, he was very upset with me for questioning why he would give me a Cadillac, because what could I give him in return? He was very upset with it. But he wanted me to know that he gave it to me because I was his friend. That was the real reason, but he was... was, uh, he was very mad. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Ryan speaking with Robert Cantwell, formerly with the Denver Police Department. In his book, The Elvis Presley I Knew, Cantwell writes about how a job guarding Elvis evolved into a friendship. Elvis would be 81 today. When we come back, the Colorado connection to Elvis's favorite sandwiches. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. On what would have been Elvis's 81st birthday, Ryan Warner speaking with Robert Cantwell, the former Denver police deputy chief, is the author of a book called The Elvis Presley I Knew. It's full of tales of the singer's life in the 1970s and his many visits to Colorado, where he discovered his favorite sandwich. Let's hear that part of the story from Nick Anderlakis, who owns Nick's Cafe in Golden. He met Elvis at a theme restaurant called the Colorado Mine Company. Anderlakis was 16 at the time and was working there as a cook when Elvis and his entourage came in at 2 in the morning to order some food. 
we had a thing on the menu called the Fool's Goat Sandwich. It was put on just for a for a gag item. It was um, our restaurant was a high end steakhouse, and we needed something funny on the menu. And the Fool's Goat consisted of a four pound sandwich, a pound of peanut butter, a pound of jelly, a pound of bacon, on a one pound sourdough loaf. We cut it in four pieces. We serve it in a miner's tin. You know, when you when you think about Elvis coming in, you think you'd offer him steak, lobster. For some odd reason, I just said, Elvis, do you want to try our Fool's Gold sandwich? And uh, he tried it, and he loved it. He loved the sandwich. <laughs> he ate two pieces, which was two pounds of the sandwich. You make them now at Nick's Cafe Nick's in Golden, Cafe. Yes. which you own. And what was the cost of a Fool's Gold? Not that Elvis would have batted an eye at whatever the cost was, but... The last time before we closed the restaurant, our Fool's Gold was sixty four ninety five on the menu. Sixty four ninety five. Price negotiable. I understand you have brought. Is it the whole thing a full Fool's Gold sandwich with you? We we made two full Fool's Gold sandwiches and cut them up for your crew today. Okay, open this up for us. How much does it cost today? We get $7 a piece for them today at Nick's Cafe. So this is on French bread? Yeah, that is actually sourdough French bread. Okay. So, grape jelly? No, we're using strawberry jelly now. Okay. Peanut butter? Peanut butter and bacon. And bacon. Yeah, very simple sandwich. Mmm. You know the... Oh, God, it's going to be impossible to talk with the peanut butter. I'm surprised Elvis could tell you how he felt about the sandwich. The peanut butter and jelly reminds me of being a kid, and then the bacon reminds me I'm an adult. I like that. So he would come back well, to the mine company for this sandwich. He was up in Vail skiing or snowmobiling sometimes, and he would come down and eat sometimes. Would he ever play music at the restaurant? Uh, one night that I remember, he played music. He played. He actually sang. He didn't play the piano, but Roger Wolf was there, and it was late. I was early in the morning, actually. And he uh, sang a little bit the piano he was, uh, while Roger was playing. Did you request a song? Yes, I requested My Way. My Way. Oh, like the, the one Frank Sinatra made. Yes, yeah. I planned each charted course, each careful step, along the byway, one more, much more than this, I did it my Elvis died in 1977, and uh, Robert, how did you hear the news, and, and, and what was your reaction? Well, I heard the news from uh, Jerry Kennedy. He got a call, I believe it was from uh, Elvis's dad, Vernon. Kennedy was your boss at the Denver Police Department. Yes, and we flew right out, you know, to be at the Graceland. And while we were there, you know, we, uh, we stayed around Elvis. We weren't working. They asked us uh, very kindly if we would stay by Elvis's casket, which was in a in the room that Elvis used to have his piano in when we were there many other times. But and I think they, at that time they wanted to make sure that someone didn't say like they did say afterwards that uh, he's still alive. Huh. And so, but I can attest that he's he's deceased because I had to touch him. I told Ron, I said, "Man, I got to touch him." I mean, I know. Somebody's going to say something, and I'm going to say, yeah, I touched him. I know he was cold. Ron was your, your partner uh, on the police yes. force. Yes. There was a lot of speculation about prescription drugs that were in his system, but also, you know, his touring, his weight gain. What, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I can honestly say that the never saw him uh, under the influence of uh, drugs. I mean, he was always very clear eyes, clear voice. I never saw him drink any alcoholic beverages. He always drank mineral water that he brought in from Memphis in cases. But uh, one time, and the only time drugs ever came up around me was we were in Vegas, and it was a, a late, late show. They're all late with Elvis. And anyway, next thing I know, I'm sitting on the stairway just watching everybody have a good time when uh, all of a sudden I, I get this uh, hug you know, and I said, who's that? Who's, who's hugging me? You know, and you, as a police officer, you know, you turn around real fast like you're going to punch somebody. And it was Elvis. And he was asking why I wasn't dancing and all that. I asked him, Elvis, how do you how do you keep these strange hours? He said, well, when I'm off the stage, you know, I just can't go to sleep. He said, I'm, I'm just hyper. And he said, sometimes, he said, not all the time, but sometimes I'll take a sleep aid, you know, to help me get to sleep. That's the only time I ever heard him talk about anything to do with drugs. Well, Nick, your small restaurant will be packed. It always is on the anniversary of Elvis's birthday. Are you, uh, are you ready to feed the masses? We're ready. We're we're gonna make a million sandwiches, and we want Bob to come over and uh, hang out with us. Lots of peanut butter, lots of bacon, lots of jam. Gentlemen, uh, thanks for lots of memories. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Now see you there, Nick. A little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart and make it satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Nick Anderlakis owns Nick's Cafe in Golden, and former Denver Police Deputy Chief Robert Cantwell is the author of the book The Elvis Presley I Knew. Both were friends of Elvis Presley, who would have been 81 years old today. And you can see photos of Elvis in a Denver police uniform on our website, cprnews.org. That is by me, that is by me, baby. Come on, baby, I'm tired of talking. Grab your coat and let's start walking. You can't help but love Gracie Brookins. She's the main character in a new novel about a midwife in the 1880s. Gracie lives in the mining town of Swandike, Colorado, and she's delivered most of the babies there. But her job doesn't stop when the babies are born. She visits them, makes them tiny quilts, and brings their families jam. But one day, she's accused of murdering an infant. The book is called The Last Midwife. Author Sandra Dallas told me Gracie's a lot like other Coloradans she's met who live in mountain towns. She's a, very much like the people I knew in Breckenridge when I lived there in 1963. She has a love-hate relationship with the land. Land is very important and the uh, setting is very important to me. She's she loves the mountains. She hates the winters, like most of the people up there. She loves the women and children. She feels she has a calling as a midwife, that it's a God-given gift. But she's tired. She's been a midwife for more than 50 years. And she worries about mistakes that she might make, too. She feels guilty that she doesn't have the knowledge to save women and, and uh, who've died in childbirth and babies who've never taken a breath. 
In the book, uh, the local doctor, who's a man, is very competitive with Gracie. He doesn't like that the woman would rather have her delivering their babies than him. And Gracie is really um, a critical source of information for these women that she's caring for. Talk about that. She knows not only more about childbirth than the doctor does, but the women trust her. She understands them. She understands why a woman who has six or seven little children clinging to her skirts wants to terminate a pregnancy or why she doesn't want to get pregnant in the first place. And she actually will help some of them terminate a pregnancy. That's a little unclear. Uh Uh, She won't talk about that, but she will send them to an abortionist in Central City. Uh, But there are times when she knows that women shouldn't proceed with. They've had too many children. They can't live through another pregnancy. And so there's a hint that she may help them. How similar is Gracie's work as a midwife uh, to what midwives back then in the 1880s really experienced? I did a lot of research on 19th century midwifery. Women were generally trained by apprenticing to uh, practicing midwives. They certainly didn't have the medical knowledge that uh, midwives have today, but they did have a great knowledge of women and a great sympathy for women. Uh, They knew a great deal about childbirth, more than doctors did. Without giving too much away in the story, tell us a little bit about the murder. Gracie is accused of murdering, not, not an abortion, but of murdering a newborn baby, She's dumbfounded when the uh, when she's accused of this because she would never hurt a baby. But the baby is the child of the wealthiest man in, in uh, the community, a uh, major mine owner, and he insists that she be arrested. The murder charge really devastates Gracie, and there are a lot of parts of this book that keep you in suspense. And that's all I'm going to say about, you know, the murder. But A lot of your novels have this element of mystery to them, and I wonder what draws you to that storyline. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have to have some sort of storyline. My books tend to be character-driven rather than plot-driven. In fact, finding plots is really hard for me. But I I like secrets, and Gracie certainly has a great many secrets, some so deep that she can't share them with her husband. And I like the element of surprise. I like twists, and you get that with mysteries. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Sandra Dallas about her new book, The Last Midwife. You've written 15 novels, 10 nonfiction books, two children's novels. And as you mentioned before, the land almost becomes one of your characters. What does that mean? The mountain people had a love-hate relationship with the land. They were rooted into it. Uh, they were like the the pines at Timberline, uh, who who are formed by the wind and and the, the cold and the atmosphere. The people I knew up there had their own way of speaking. They would say "us go home now," and they had their own mannerisms. And if and they they wouldn't leave as much as they hated the winners. They hated the idea of leaving, and if they had to, say because of the altitude, they would go to Salida or. or uh, Buena Vista, where they could still see their mountains. I'd love you to read a paragraph about the women in this mountain town. Many are married to minors. Uh, the passage is on page 70. It begins with, um, Gracie loved the women. Gracie loved the women, mountain hard, strong, knowing like her that come fall, they'd be no better off, but they let their husbands hope. 
watched as the men's packed their burrows, sent them off with smiles and cries of, save me the biggest lump of gold. But what a woman really thought was maybe he'd find a little gold this time, enough to go back home, to go back where they'd come from, where rain was warm and the wind didn't howl its loneliness. It's um, sort of like these these women. It's a little bit torturous for them to be married to minors and not know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Did you research that? It, life was like that in the 19th century in a lot of jobs, but particularly in mining, which was so dangerous. And they never knew when there were uh, women would keep the beds turned down in case their husbands were brought home injured. Yeah, and there was this real fear of of that injury. And, and the book is set in the 10-mile range, which encompasses what's now the Breckenridge Ski Resort. And I wonder, is Swandike a real town? There is a Swandike. I used the name, but I didn't use the setting. Swandike was a very, very tiny town. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process. Uh, you were a business reporter in your past life. And you write about a novel a year. Authors talk about how hard that is, how hard it is sometimes to get up and write every day. And I wonder how you keep on the schedule. Well, it's hard to get up and vacuum. It's not particularly hard to get up and write. Uh, I developed the discipline as a uh, uh, reporter where if you say you have a bad day and it does, the writing doesn't come, you have to find another job. So it was not really hard. It's not hard for me uh, to sit down and write every day. I consider it a job. What's hard for me is coming up with a plot, with coming up with the idea for a story. Once I have it, then the writing goes pretty fast. Well, how do you find these ideas? How do you find the ideas for a new story? Um, Virtually anywhere. Uh, Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night, somebody says something. Some of my experiences at Business Week uh, have – some of the stories that I wrote at Business Week actually turned into novels. One was a a novel about the 1856 Mormon handcart expedition. Huh. And and so as a business reporter, some of these storylines have translated to your work. I covered uh, hard rock mining for Business Week. And learned a great deal about the subject and about the people. And I covered copper mining in Butte, for instance, and talked to a lot of the old timers. So that's where a lot of that comes from. So do you have an idea for your next novel? Have you thought about it? I'm working on a children's book, and I don't know what I'm going to do after that. It's not something that I can sit down and and plan. I just have to wait until the right thing hits me. And what is it about writing children's books that you like? I mean, that's very different from writing a novel about a midwife in a mining town. I sort of fell into it. I had written a a book about the history of quilting in Colorado in the Mountain States called The Quilt That Walked to Golden. And I was told that the title story would work into a children's book. So I tried it and sent it off to my agent. And she said, well, nice try, but this is 5,000 words. It has to be 40,000 words. And mm-hmm. so I put it away. And then I was contacted by a children's book publisher. And I said, well, I've got this manuscript. And and they sent me a contract. And then I realized I had to write uh, a <laughs> great deal more to it. Uh, it's fun. It's It's shorter. It's not as challenging and in some ways, the writing is is good. You don't go through all the character development. But it's fun. It's, it's like a change of pace. Sandra, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. 
Sandra Dallas's new novel is The Last Midwife. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Thanks to Matt Hers and Michael Hughes. Our theme music was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.